Let me pray for us and then we'll jump into the text in Genesis chapter 2. God, I'm grateful for the, your people and the generosity of this church. And I, I pray that, God, we would be reminded that what we do to the least of these, we do to you. So I pray for us that you would continue to bless us. And as we are blessed by you, we would uh, live open handed and give generously to those who are sick, those who are in prison. Uh, those who are thirsty, those who are hungry, and visit those who are sick. And God, I pray for us now as we look at your word, that you would use your word to transform us, to make us more like Christ Jesus. I pray this in his mighty and famous name, and all of God's people said, Amen. We're in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 through 17. If you've been with us, we're walking through Genesis chapter 1 through 11. We've titled this series Origins, and that means that this is the origins of all that we believe to be true about our faith. Everything that we know to be true about Christianity can be found in these first 11 chapters. So it's the origins of what we believe and why we believe them. This morning we're going to look again at the origins of mankind, and what is it that God has set out for mankind. The, the theological term for this passage would be the covenant of works. Not that doesn't mean the covenant of works that we got to work our way to salvation, but there's this promise by God, from God, for man to work. And so often we think that works came into play after the fall. It's not true. God designed us to work and care for what God created. And so this morning, I want to look at that. I want to look at three things. Man's nature man's position, and finally, man's responsibility. There's something interesting that happens in this portion of Scripture. If you've been with us, in chapter 1, we've looked at uh, the name of God over and over and over again. 35 times in the first chapter, we see God. We see the name Elohim is mentioned in the Bible. And the, the word Elohim means this, that God is sovereign in control of all things, that he sits on his throne and he rules and he creates, uh, he creates and then he rules what he created. But there's something interesting that happens in this text in verse four. There's a transition that will happen here that sets the stage for the rest of the Bible. The name of God is changed. You can see that in verse four, uh, part B. It says, in that day, the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. And seven times, just in these few verses this morning, seven different times, the, the writer Moses uses the name God or Elohim, Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. And so what the writer does is he's now taking this sovereign God that rules, and now he's making it a very personable God. He's saying to us, God doesn't just rule over his creation, but there's this God, the Lord God, uh, Yahweh Elohim, that wants to have a personal relationship with what he's created. It changes everything. That he's saying that God isn't going to stand back at a distance watching and ruling, but God is going to step into the picture with his creation and walk in relationship with his people and then call them into relationship with him. If you think about it, God didn't need mankind 
to work the land. God didn't, doesn't need us at all, but God has this desire to be in relationship with us or in partnership with us to do things with Him. He's a very relational God. Unlike any other God in all the world, we have a relational God. Allah is not a relational God. Buddha was not a relational God. All throughout all the other religions, there's no relationship with God and man holding hand. But now in this text, we see that God has the desire to walk hand in hand with his people. So what the name means, Yahweh Elohim, is this. That God is not only creator, but the word Yahweh means Lord. The word means this, to be a redeemer. He's already going to set the stage in verse 4 of chapter 2 that there would be a, a need for redemption of mankind ever before the fall. And so he's saying to us already, I'm both creator and redeemer. And you're going to need not just the creator, but you are going to need the redeemer. Amen. Thank God we don't just have a Lord that's sovereign in control of all things and sits on his throne, but does not have a personal relationship with us, but desires to redeem his people. Amen. So let's look at what this God Yahweh Elohim is going to do in this passage. The first thing is man's nature. That God created mankind. I'll, I'll read verses 5, but I'll look at verse 7 uh, for this for sure. It says this, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, that's saying that there, there was no weeds. There was no, as you'll see in chapter 3, there's no thorn or thistle. Like, all that was created was perfect. And yet God still, in His perfection, needs us to go and toil and work the land. He's saying it's going to get harder because of the fall. There's going to be thorn and thistle. But up until this point, there was no thorn or thistle in, in the land. It says this, no, none of that had sprung up. And the Lord God had not caused it to rain. We know rain enters the picture at Noah. There'd been no need for rain. And then it says this in verse 5. There was no man, what? To work the land. So work doesn't happen after the fall. God needs us to work the land before the fall. It just gets harder after the fall. It says this, and the midst, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the garden. And now it says this, God is going to create man. We're going to see the nature of man in, these, in this one verse. It says the Lord God formed the man of dust. That's where we get his name from, Adam means out of the ground, Adam. Out of dust, from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man was, became a living creature. The first thing that we see is this, that who formed us? God formed us. That God, and he didn't just take leftover parts from creation. It wasn't like he was in heaven and had all these leftover pieces on a shelf and thought, what, what am I going to do with those? Oftentimes I have to cook like that. 
get home and I hadn't gone to the store and I got a bunch of leftover things. I'm like, man, I'm just going to throw this all together and hopefully it tastes good. Anyone ever done that? That, that? God isn't dealing with leftover pieces. God in his wisdom and his sovereignty had created everything. And then it says that God created man. God formed man. He's got a purpose for us. He knew the reason he was creating us. He wasn't creating us for his entertainment. He wasn't wasn't creating us because he was bored. He definitely wasn't creating us because he was lonely. God wanted a relationship with man, so he created them uniquely and distinctly after what we saw in chapter 1. His own image. He, He wanted something in his creation that was so unique that he created you. And I, we have a divine structure about us. Yes, all, it says this in Romans, that all of nature can show God, but not like you and I. There is a divine structure that God has put in place in us. Here's what the psalmist knew about being formed in the image of God, that God had formed him. He says this in Psalm 139, 14. I praise you because what? I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you know that this morning? I could stop here and preach just on this one part of this one passage. That God formed you. And you were fearfully, wonderfully made. You see, the bulk of my work as a therapist is many men and many women not believing they are fearfully and wonderfully made. But they've been so harmed by other God's creatures that they no longer believe that they're fearfully and wonderfully made, and then they go live destructive lives. But we must see, church, that God had a purpose and a plan for our life. He created us uniquely to be in relationship with Him and with one another. And yet the abuse of the world has robbed us from really believing that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. If you're a teenager, listen to me. If you're in elementary school, for sure, listen to me. There's no mistake about you. There's nothing in your lives that is a mistake. Older people, listen to me. You may have lived a life believing one mistake after next, after next, That's what defines you. That is not what defines you. What defines us is what this passage says about us. Then the Lord God formed man. There is no mistake about any one of us in this room. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. But here's the beauty. It doesn't just stop being fearfully and wonderfully made. Like if all God did was just make us and then put us on a shelf, we should, could still be fearfully and wonderfully made. Anyone ever made things and just put them on a shelf? Well, that's not what God does. God fearfully and wonderfully makes us, and then it says this about us. He formed us out of the dust of the ground, and then he did what? He breathed into his nostrils the breath. Of life, 
then God breathes into us. We are the only thing in all of creation that it says we have the very breath of God in us. If we carry the breath of God in us, if you think about it this way, the first act with God to man is a kiss. Like it's, it's like a, life, uh, a, a, a lifeguard breathing life into a person where they put their lips on the lips of another person. God is showing us from the beginning, I want an intimate relationship with you, not just a relationship with you. I want intimacy with you, and I'm going to give you what it has to take for me to give you life. We were dead. Even at creation, we were dead. He created us. We were still dead. It took God's act of breathing his breath into our lungs to give us life. You did not say to God, God, give me breath. God said, I want to give you my breath. And so God creates and God breathes. And God gives us intimacy with him. And out of his intimacy, catch this. What happens to us? We become what? It says next in the text. The breath of life. And man became what? A living soul. So God creates. Plus God's breath equals life. The only way for you and I. Again, I could stop here and just preach this. The only way for you to have life. And life to the full is to have God breathe his breath into your lungs. You do not bring your breath to his lungs. I promise that. There is nothing that you bring to the table but a dead, rotting corpse. And God in his wisdom, God in his sovereignty, God in his kindness breathes his very breath into your lungs that makes you a living being. First, physically, but more importantly, my hope and prayer for everyone in the room, is that God's breath would we reawaken your soul to be a living creature. Has God breathed his breath into your lungs this morning? Yes, you might be a living being, but you are a dead soul without his breath in your soul. You must decide that this morning. So God creates, God breathes, which makes us a living being. And then God does this. After he makes us a living being, it says this in verse 8, to our position, God places us somewhere. We see two things in this passage. So often we come to this text and we think, we often say this, it's the Garden of Eden. That's not what the passage says. There's no such thing as the Garden of Eden. There is such thing as the garden in Eden. Now you might be thinking, why, why are you parsing words? Because that's important. That God had created everything that he made. But then there's this one place in all that he created that he calls the garden or that he calls paradise. So he doesn't just place us in a place, but he places us where? In paradise. He's pointing us forward to what's going to happen to us in the future. That God is going to place us where? After these dead bodies die, he's going to take this soul and place us where? In paradise. 
He's pointing us towards the end already. Should blow our minds. So a few things that we see. There is a place, and there was a place, called Eden. Just for the sake of time, I have no idea where that is. And nor does anyone else. So if you ever hear someone say, oh, Eden's right here, know they're lying. Just move on. We do not know where Eden is. We have a general idea of where Eden is, but we do not know. But this is what we do know about this passage. It says this. Though we may not know where Eden is, we may not know where the where the garden is, we do know this about Eden and about the garden. We do know it's paradise. And what makes it paradise? The thing that makes it paradise is not the trees. It's not the water that flows all over. It's not the vegetation. It's not the animals. What makes it paradise is this. We'll see it in a few, few weeks. That the very presence of God was always in that place with his people. That's what makes paradise paradise. And it says this, and we know this to be true, that God's presence was in paradise with his creation and nothing came between us and it. There was no sin yet. So our position, Adam's position, was in Eden, in paradise, but more importantly, in the very presence of God. With no stain, no blemish, constant presence with God. No fear of being abandoned. No wondering where God was. Anyone ever felt like, where is God? Adam never felt that way till Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 and 9. Like anytime God called Adam, he could say hello, and anytime Adam called to God, he knew exactly where they were. That's paradise, is it not? That's what we have to look forward to in heaven. Never wondering where God is. I'm not the only one in the building that has often wondered where God is at. Where's God in my cancer? Where's God in my disease? Where's God in my miscarriage? Where's God in my job? Where's God in my relationship with my wife? Where's God in relationship with my kids? Where's God? No, in Adam, in the garden, in paradise, Adam never had that question until the fall. I can't wait to get back to that position with God. Can you? And now we get to the covenant of works. Man's responsibility from this text. Again, I could preach a sermon just on this. Does everyone know that the Bible starts and ends the same way? The Bible starts with trees in a garden. In Genesis chapter 2, we see that here. You know how the Bible ends in Revelation? With trees lining up the river. It's the same exact trees. The question I would pose to you then this morning is, how do we live between the trees? If God has this tree here at the beginning and God's going to reestablish this tree at the end, then it really matters how we live in between. It matters. All this matters. And how do we live that way? So there's two trees. We see the trees in verse 9. There's the tree of life 
and the tree of knowledge. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge. This is what God says. He now says this about the two trees. Or about his creation. He gives man a responsibility or he gives man a command in this passage. He says verses 10 through 14 are just about the garden and how God takes care of the garden, how God waters the garden, what the garden kind of looks like. But then it says this in 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden, what? To work it. To care for it. To nurture it. And to keep it. So he places him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Verse 16 says this. And then the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, the personal God, gives man a command. The command is this. You shall surely eat of every tree in the garden. The first command we see this about God. It's a permissional command. Like God's giving them permission to do something. How often do we think of God withholding things for us? When we think of a command of God, we think of the Ten Commandments. That's God withholding, 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 withholding. No, the very first command that God ever gives to mankind is a command of permission. Go and work it and eat whatever you want. Now, how many of your kids, if you told them, man, you can have whatever you want in this house, they'd go crazy. Right? Well, that's what God is saying as our Father. He's saying, I've set the banquet table for you. You can have all of it, as many M&Ms as you want. You want the peanut M&Ms? I got those too. You want the peanut butter M&Ms? I got those too. But the best of all is Miss Marilyn's goodness bars. He's got a whole row just for me. Don't eat them. So he's saying, he set the table. He's saying, everything you want is yours. A command of promise, a command of permission all of it's yours. But how often do we not live that way? How often do we live like God has not given us a, a, a command of promise or permission? That we always think that God is withholding. That, that God doesn't want what's best. That God doesn't want to give. No, God knows exactly what we need. And he's put it on a table and says, it's all yours. Have at it. But we live starving ourselves from all that God has given to us. There is a promise or a command that prohibits. Catch what it says. You can have every tree of the garden. But the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Now, this is not God playing tricks with us. This is not God dangling a carrot in front of us. This isn't God being mean to us. This is God simply saying to us, I know what's best. Catch this. What's the one thing that God said we could not eat? The one thing. Knowledge. Anyone ever thought, man, why did you not eat the first tree of life first. Anyone ever thought that? Like he said, you got to have all the fruit, even that tree. Like there's two distinct trees in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. 
And he said, you can have all of them, even that tree of life. But the one tree you can't eat is the tree of knowledge. Anyone ever thought, well, Adam, how come you didn't eat that tree first? Do you, anyone else thought that before? Well, here's what's true about Adam. Adam's thinking, why do I need to eat that tree of life? I already have life. Why would, we, why would Adam even think to eat a tree of life when he already has it and has it to the full? But man, what does Satan do to us? He tempts us with what we do not have, not with what we have. I'm going to get to here in a couple weeks. But Satan enters the picture and says what? He first says, did God say you can't eat of any tree? And Eve starts backpedaling because Eve doesn't know the word of God. No, no, God said just don't eat that one tree of knowledge of good and evil because you're going to die. And he tricks her, he dupes her. And we'll see in a couple weeks, he, he, they're going to eat the tree and it messes them up. And then there's a promise that comes out of that about the other tree. And this promise about the other tree, not being able to eat the tree of life, it's for our good too. Could you imagine living in this state for the rest of our lives if Adam had eaten of that tree of life? It's because of God's goodness to us that he said to Adam, hey, you can't eat that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but no longer can you eat of this tree either. That's for our good. I could not imagine living an entire life like this. This is hell. I just had a birthday, and it only gets worse. Like, this is a living hell. I'm not saying that as a cuss word. I'm saying that as, like, this is, this is hell for us. But here's what's true about us as believers. This is the only hell that we'll ever know, praise God. That's because Adam never ate of the other tree. And here's the sad part. If you don't know Christ today, this is the only paradise you'll ever know. This is paradise compared to what you'll go to. So man's responsibility is to care for the land, not to eat the fruit of knowledge, but have whatever we want. So I want to close in giving us an application this morning about this text. What went wrong for Adam and Eve, and I'll get to this in a few weeks, was this. They attempted to get something that only could, God could give on their own accord. Like the thing that was limited in Adam and Eve was knowledge. They didn't have it. They already had life, but they did not have knowledge. They did not have knowledge to be like God. And so what happened? And what happens to us? It's that very thing that we do not have that we go after that we want, and we want it where and how? On our terms. And anytime we go after things that God graciously wants to give to us, because God wants to give us wisdom, does everyone in the room know that? He tells us in James, he tells us in Proverbs, hey, if you lack wisdom, ask, I'll give it to you. But he does not say, hey, if you, act with, if you lack wisdom, go figure out how to get it on your own. 
Because he knows when you try to go figure it out on your own, you're going to make your life a disaster. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. They did not have something, so they took what God told them not to have. They took life into their own hands, and now we live in a disastrous state because of their choices of wanting something on their own terms where God would have graciously given them wisdom. Do we know that? It's not that God wants to withhold wisdom from us. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. It's just God has a way of giving us wisdom. He has his way to give us wisdom. It says this. This is how we get wisdom, and this is where Adam and Eve fell. They lacked this one thing. Proverbs 1, verse 7. The what? Fear of the Lord is the what? Beginning of wisdom. They no longer feared God because God had given them a command not to eat something. So their lack of fearing what God had said led them to a disastrous life. And if all they had done is feared God and the promises of God and the command of God, they would have been wise, wise people. Another verse is Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So here's what's true about us as we close. Not just about wisdom. Not just about knowledge. But God has a desire for us. God has a plan for us. Jeremiah 29, 11 says this. I know the plans I have for you. Plans to what? Prosper. Things for your good well-being. But we must submit ourselves to the Lord. If we ever want to live how God created us to live and get all that God wanted us to get, we must submit ourselves to him. Here's what's true about us all this morning. God has set a banquet table for us. And he's telling all of us to eat and eat as much as you want. But the promise is still true from Genesis chapter 2. He's saying to us, there's one thing that will kill you quicker than anything else. It's going against my holy word. You see, do we know God's word enough? Do we know God's word in the way that the psalmist said, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not what? Sin against you. Do we know God's holy word? If we know God's holy word, then we will know God's holy promises. If we know God's holy promises, we will live by them and we will have what Jesus tells us in John 10.10. I've come to give you life and life to the full. He's coming to give you life in your marriage. He's coming to give you life in whatever situation you're going through this morning. But it's according to his word and his word only. Do not, I plead with you, take life into your hands and get it on your terms because it will end in disaster like it did for our original parents. Let us pray.